Good morning, and welcome to the Palcast, the podcast from the White Coat Underground. I'm your host, Peter Lipson, an internist in the Midwestern United States. The slight grind in the voice and the dripping in the background will tell you that this is indeed early morning. My coffee is brewing, my voice is slowly waking up. The sun is rising over my backyard and peeking through the big oak tree. When you have a family and you have a job, it's not always easy to find an hour of uninterrupted quiet time. So, sometimes you just got to get up early. I've had a few things on my mind lately I'd like to share with you. I've been thinking a lot about communication. And what sort of framed this for me was uh, receiving a copy of the book Unscientific America, written by Chris Mooney and Shale Kirschenbaum, which has caused quite a stir in the blogosphere. People who study communication, such as Chris Mooney or Matthew Nisbet, are widely reviled among certain elements uh, in the blogosphere. But stick with me here. This isn't going to be about some sort of blogospheric infighting. There's a bigger point here. You see, some people who actually study communication for a living have found that the way we present our message makes a difference. Now, I know that's not earth-shattering news to most of us, but it's something that I certainly have to think about every day in my practice and every day when I'm trying to write. For example, I write for two blogs. One of them is The White Coat Underground, and the other is Science-Based Medicine at sciencebasedmedicine.com. At sciencebasedmedicine.com, we have elected to have a more staid and serious discussion of the issues of alternative medicine to make it more widely acceptable to professionals. Now, that assumes a few things. That assumes that that's the tone that professionals want. But in general, in our society, to be taken seriously, a message has to be stated in a certain way, in a certain serious way, with more formal language. And that's the way it is for right now. Unfortunately, that type of language isn't always the most interesting language to read, and that is one of the things writers struggle with all the time. In the so-called real world, I have the advantage of being able to see the face of the person I'm communicating with and respond to those cues. This is obviously not so when writing, although in a blog with comments, you at least get a certain sense of your readership sometimes. You know, not not long ago, I had a patient come to see me, and she's got metastatic badness of some sort. Um, she's she's probably not going to do all that well in the long run, but on the other hand, she's not a young person. She's going to die of something. Anyway, she was interested in getting a second opinion from another oncologist, and she was concerned that her first oncologist would be offended. She wanted to know how they would feel if she were to do that. And this is a patient I've known for a long time, and I get a sense of how they communicate and how they listen to things. And you know, I encouraged her to get the second opinion, etc. And she looked at me and said, "But I'm so concerned about, you know, offending my first oncologist." And I looked at her and I said, "Fuck 'em." And she just broke out laughing. Her oxygen fell off and everything. She was just laughing so hard. And obviously, you can't drop an F-bomb in front of every octogenarian who's in your practice. But it says something about the ability to communicate, to interact with someone who's sitting right in front of you. And you have to guess when you're doing that, when you're writing. And that is something that I think about every day when I try to 
turn out a piece for my blog. <sighs> wow, long pause. I think about it too much sometimes, and sometimes there's something I just have to say in a more vulgar kind of way because that's my mood. And no, I wouldn't submit it to the New England Journal of Medicine, but hey, it's a blog. On the other hand, I recently wrote a piece and will be giving a lecture or two about physicians and their online presence. You gotta be careful how you present yourself when you are a visible professional because people will make judgments and it will affect your ability to do your work. Not to mention the fact that there are actually some legal constraints on how doctors are allowed to communicate through the HIPAA law, which requires that physicians retain a level of confidentiality. Now, we're already supposed to do that. That's our ethics. This adds a bureaucratic layer of legality to it, which is sometimes helpful and sometimes just bureaucratic. But going back for just a minute here, people do sometimes confuse the way the message is delivered for the content of the message. And yes, they're, they're sort of the same thing in a way. But, you know, I write quite a bit about ethics. And in doing this, I often use language that's rather harsh and sometimes vulgar. And sometimes people are surprised that I actually write about ethics. But ethics is about how you treat other people. It's not about how you say things uh, in the sense of what language you use. So, you know, I, I actually like causing that disconnect and showing people that it's possible to think ethically but speak simply and sometimes in a rather earthy way. Now, changing gears a little bit here and getting more into some hardcore woo, the way we frame certain issues really does affect the way they are perceived, which once again is no earth-shattering surprise. But uh, back in the mid-90s, legislation was passed that took herbal, non-quote pharmacologic, unquote, medications, which if that sounds muddled, that's because it is, and allowed them to bypass the usual FDA process of requiring proof of efficacy and safety before you market something. In the bureaucratese of the FDA, uh, what it basically says is, quote, the FDA regulates dietary supplements under a different set of regulations than those covering, quote, conventional foods and drug products, prescription and over-the-counter. Under the DSHEA, I'll abbreviate it for you, the dietary supplement manufacturer is responsible for ensuring that a dietary supplement is safe before it is marketed. Note, there is no mention there of effectiveness. FDA is responsible for taking action against any unsafe dietary supplement product after it reaches the market. In other words, if you want to market something for someone's health, you know, a drug, you can evade the entire regulatory and pre-marketing process of the Food and Drug Administration, of uh, of the federal government in general, simply by saying that it's a dietary supplement and slapping what I call the quack Miranda warning on it. For those listeners who aren't from the United States, uh, a Miranda warning is that uh, famous line that police officers in the States are required to give someone when they're arrested. You, you know, you have the right to remain silent, anything, blah, blah, blah. And the that pretty much says, well, you know, if you give up that right, we can do whatever the hell we want to you. Um, the quack Miranda warning goes as follows. 
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What interests me is that any time you see that language, somebody is doing just that. They are intending to diagnose, prevent, or treat a disease. Let me give you a quick example that is sitting here right on the internet. It took a two-second Google search. The product is called Pectisol. And let's see what it says here. It is made with real citrus pectin and can help you restore your immune balance and health. Bullet points. Enhance your immune system function, especially if you have a chronic disease. Maintain your optimal health by removing toxic and radioactive metals in your body. I wish you could see my face when I did that. Slow down the doubling time of your PSA levels when cancer is present. All right, that one scares me. Uh, help prevent aberrant cells from adhering to your critical organs and tissues. Promote normal cholesterol levels. Take a supplement that has been successfully clinically tested. All right, you know, I, I got to stop. You know, right at the bottom of this here, it says, These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Oh, my God, they just said it was. So this is what I found about the Quack Miranda warning. It is a nearly flawless way of finding quackery and woo on the web or anywhere else. If you see that warning, it's nearly 100% certain that one, they are intending to do just the things they say that they aren't, and two, the product can't do any of the things that is claimed. This law, Deshay, is a major loophole in protecting the American public from this kind of scam. And it's just that, it's a scam. There are, I'm sure, some people who believe in some of these products, but as we've talked about before, the ethical requirement of treating other human beings with respect, dignity, and intending them no harm would require that you still don't do this. You can't claim, well, because I'm a believer, because I was ignorant, my ethical responsibilities have stopped. They haven't. This is, if you think about it, really brilliantly designed legislation to use communication effectively to deceive people. People want to believe in these miracle cures, so it takes into account that people want to believe these things. It allows the companies to make all of the claims that people want to believe, whether or not they're true, and then it protects them legally by slapping on the quack Miranda warning. It is a perfect device to allow people to make money on the backs of frightened consumers. And just to remind you, it is called the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994, in case anybody feels like, you know, writing a legislator. I'm going back here a little bit now. The whole idea of communication, using communication to deceive, to coerce, to convince is central to medicine and not just to quacks. If you'll recall, for example, colonoscopy is a very effective screening technique for colon cancer. And if you put all the studies and evidence together, in general, it would seem a person would do very well to have a colonoscopy at the age of 50, all other things being equal. Colon cancers tend to start and progress in a certain way, are predictable, and intervention can be 
undertaken before the precancerous lesions become cancerous. It's kind of a perfect storm of prevention. However, a colonoscopy requires somebody to drink a lot of foul-tasting liquid that makes them expel the entire contents of their gut, and it requires them to allow somebody to insert a very long tube with a camera on the end up their rectum. How do you convince someone to do that? It's all about sales. I mean, sure, some people are perfectly willing to undergo any diagnostic procedure if you tell them it's a good idea, but the majority of people are a little bit hesitant when it comes to this one. And in some circumstances, maybe they should be. If I have, for instance, an 80-year-old patient, and it's time for a screening colonoscopy, on the calendar at least, it requires a more subtle discussion. Let's say, for instance, that a patient comes to me and says, I'd like my colonoscopy. I don't have symptoms. I just want to be screened for colon cancer. Let's say they had a normal colonoscopy sometime in the last five or 10 years. I have to find a way to explain to them that getting a colonoscopy would not be a good idea. The reason it won't be a good idea is because they're going to be dead before it's relevant. But clearly, you can't say that to most patients. Colon cancers, most of the time, grow and progress in a certain way, in a certain predictable way. If they didn't have colon polyps five years ago, it's probably going to be another few years before they develop a cancer. And if you're already in your 80s, your expected lifespan at this point is not long. There really is no point to screening for colon cancer in some patients at an advanced age. Now, honestly, most patients are perfectly happy to hear that. They don't want a big tube shoved up their bum. On the other hand, there is, in America, this sense that we shouldn't die. We don't see people dying, except on TV. We don't expect to die ourselves. If we can just take enough pectisol or do enough in the hospital, we should never die. The truth, unfortunately, is more horrific than death. I think it's not a stretch to say that most people fear death to a certain extent. There are some exceptions. But I think if they knew a little bit more about how we approach the end of life in this country, they might fear that even more than death. Now remember, in America, no one dies. They just go to the hospital and never come back. Now, part of this is a misapprehension of what is done in hospitals and what can be done by modern medicine. Part of it is a failure on the part of healthcare professionals to properly communicate to patients about the end of life. I often tell patients that I cannot prevent someone from dying. I can sometimes delay it. If you have heart disease and I refer you to an intervention to open up your coronary arteries, I probably will delay your death by many years, especially if I follow that up with proper medical treatment. But you're still going to die. Sometimes it's quite important to explicitly address how you're going to die. Now, nobody likes to think about these things, and sometimes it can be crushingly depressing to bring up end-of-life issues with somebody, especially if they seem apparently healthy. They might think, what is the doctor not telling me? Well, what I'm telling you is what other people should have told you, especially when you're healthy and have a chance to think about it. I think that most people, if they knew what happened to the incurable in the ICUs of this country would be horrified. And 
could be convinced not to allow that to happen to them. This requires a certain compromise cognitively. The fact is that sometimes you go to the ICU in a hopeless situation and you survive. This is not the norm. So you have to ask yourself, am I willing to put it all on the line for the small percent chance that I might survive and go on to live a short time longer? If I say to my family, don't ever hook me up to all the machines if it looks hopeless and disconnect me if it looks hopeless, I have to know that, you know, every once in a while they might be wrong. Maybe I would have survived. So you have to add on that extra layer, would it have been worth it to survive? And no one can answer that for someone else, of course. Now, in many countries, there's no choice. If a hopelessly ill person is dying, they're allowed to die. People don't try to lie down in front of the train and stop it. You know, I watch a lot of medical shows, and studies have actually been done about survivability in in medical shows. For example, when somebody runs a CPR on the show ER, although they don't do it anymore because ER itself has been allowed to die, um, they survive a ridiculously high percentage of the time, when in real life people survive a small percentage of the time. One thing I, I haven't seen, I can't think of a single example, I'm sure they exist, but they must be infrequent, is a sick, sick person in the ICU and a family trying to make the decision of whether to continue futile treatment. It doesn't make great television, I'm guessing, but I can tell you from the real-life perspective, there's a lot of drama in that discussion. Yes, there's no needles shoving into people, no tubes, no shocking, But there is drama. It's not easy drama, but it's there. I'm not one to think that we can design entertainment around an ideologic purpose. It ends up being very unentertaining. But it would be nice if there were more portrayals of the end of life, of the decisions that go on at the end of life. And I don't mean, you know, the kind of thing you would see in, I don't know, Brian's song or whatever. Boy, did that just date me. I don't mean scenes where everybody's sitting around the bed weeping. I mean scenes where people are really discussing these important topics of how we approach the end of life. Hell, they're always looking for stories on 2020 and Dateline. Maybe that Stossel dude could talk about this and we could give him a break. But given that this isn't going to happen anytime soon and I'm not holding my breath, I'll continue to talk about it and write about it, and hopefully people will also talk about it. More important, hopefully physicians will talk about these kind of things with their patients before they become relevant and find a way to have end-of-life discussions without sucking the hope out of the room. And with that, we come to the end of another PalCast. I'll remind you that I can be found at the White Coat Underground, scienceblogs.com slash whitecoatunderground, and at sciencebasedmedicine.com. Thanks for listening.